If you'll take your Bibles and turn with me to Exodus chapter 17. Exodus chapter 17, and I've probably told you this story before, but when I was in first grade, you know, there's certain things that you grow up with. There's just things that you hear that are kind of ingrained in you. No one necessarily tells it to you, but there's just things that you know. There's things that you do and things that you don't do. They're kind of like codes that you live by. In first grade, now I've always been a large, I was 10 pounds at birth. My mom's not a big lady, but she always, they have big kids. So here I am, first grade, I'm the youngest guy in the class. I was 17 when I graduated from high school. I was the youngest kid in the class, but I was always big for my age. And so I go to first grade and in first grade, I have a nemesis and his name is Linford. Okay. Linford was a guy that by the time I get, you know, the fall of my first grade, this is Linford's third time in first grade. I was looking for my first grade pictures because in my first grade picture, I'm standing here and I'm looking at him and he's standing over here and I'm looking up at him with like a little, like a mean look on my little face. I'm five years old and Linford, it's scary. Now, don't anybody tell you, don't anybody tell you, and you're in first grade and some kids chewing tobacco. Now, it's scary. Even if he's not tough, he feels tough when he's chewing tobacco in first grade. I mean, you're like, this guy, he's the man. Okay. So Linford came from a, on Linford's behalf, he came from a difficult family. My dad used to take the church bus and would go around and pick the kids up and they called it the back road and dad would drive the church bus and every Saturday they'd go out and visit the homes of these people and and so I had a little resentment in my heart towards Linford because my mom and dad would take our toys and they would take our toys and they would take them over and give them to them and then we would drive by on the church bus and we see our toys laying out in the mud yard thing that they had out front and so you know I'll be honest I was a little resentful I think but you know, every day, this happened for a while. When I first started to school, the kids would gather in the back of the room. And, you know, as the buses would come in, you'd come in, you'd hang up your coat or hang up your book bag or whatever you had. And so for several days, Linford kind of roughed me up a little bit. I don't know if he tried to shut the closet doors on my head or exactly what it was, but he roughed me up for a couple days in a row. And so I grew up with this code that you don't tell anybody. You would never go tell on somebody. Nowadays, kids run and tell their teacher all the time. Like, and I, you don't do that. You don't tell anybody. You don't tell your mom and dad. And I'm not quite sure why you don't tell, but that's just the code. You just don't tell. You just, if you have a problem, you work through your problem. You take care of it yourself. You just kind of live with it. It's what did I do for him to shut the doors on my head? Oh, and I'm not quite sure. And so... He did it a couple days, and I happened to be over at Mickey's house after school, over in the backyard. And they were sitting out there at his table, and they had a picnic table, and Mickey had a little knife. Now, I'm five years old in first grade, and I said, can I borrow that? And Mickey's like, yeah, you can use it. So I went to school the next day. I'm excited to go to school. I walk into my first grade class. And my bus always got there first. And bus number 22 was Linford's bus. And I was excited for him to come because as soon as he walked in the door, I walked right up to him in front of his friends and I said, you're not going to do anything to me today. And he, you know, he's this much taller than me. He says, well, why not? 
I said, because if you do, I'm going to stick you. Now, I'm in, I'm in first grade. You know what that sissy did? It still makes me mad. He goes and tells on me. Well, he doesn't know the deal. If you beat somebody up, you don't say anything. You don't tell on people. I remember thinking, what a big sissy. I mean, he literally ran to the teacher. Mrs. Fritz, Mrs. Fritz, Steve has a knife in school. He brought a knife to school. And back in Centerville, you know what? They didn't even do anything to you. Nowadays, nowadays they would lock you up, call your parents. The teacher just took the knife and didn't paddle me, didn't do anything. And then the turkey, when we would go to church, he would do stuff. And anytime I responded, he would run to my, my mom and dad. My, they were Sunday school teachers at church and he was in my mom's Sunday school teach thing. And so every week he would come to Sunday school and report to my parents the things that I did to him. Now, and there again, I remember thinking, you big sissy, why are you tattling on me? So later mom, mom said, mom said to me, because she found out later on about those things. And she says, well, why didn't you tell me? And it was, well, mom, you just, you just don't tell those things. There's just things that, not that, that I brought the knife. I mean, I don't, but you just don't tell the things, the difficult things that happen. Now, I told you that story to talk to you about things that leaders wish you knew. Because here's the reality. For a lot of people, there's a lot of things that people don't tell. I don't know why it is. I don't know if you're embarrassed. I don't know if you don't want to bother other people with things. I don't know if it's because maybe you feel guilty, like, well, this is my burden to carry. This is, this is what I have to. Or maybe it's because you think that they'll think what I thought of Linford. You big sissy, quit whining. So this morning, I want to talk to you about the humanity of leaders. And I think one of the best examples of the humanity of leaders can be found in the life of Moses, okay? In Exodus chapter 17, if you'll turn there with me, it says this. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses, give us water to drink. And Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? Now, I want to ask you this question before we go any further. What does the scripture say about their traveling? They were going from place to place. What does it say? As the Lord commanded. Who was leading the people of Israel? God was. God was directing them. God was guiding them. God was leading them. He was telling them the way that they were to go. Now, as we keep on reading, we find this. But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I to do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord answered Moses, go out in front of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand a staff with which you struck the Nile and go. And I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel and they called the place Masa and Meribah 
because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? Now, who does it say that they tested? They tested the Lord. And their response is, they're testing the Lord. When the Israelites face difficulties, who do they direct their frustrations towards? You can shout out the answers, okay? Whenever the people became frustrated, it's natural. They were thirsty. They didn't have anything to drink. Who do they direct their frustration towards? It's, yes, it's Moses. Moses, it's got to be your fault. God raised Moses up as a deliverer for the people. But I want you to think about this, and probably some of you have never thought about it. Moses didn't really need a deliverer. In the sense that the people needed a deliverer, Moses didn't need that. Moses was not out in the field working. Moses was not making bricks. What was Moses doing? Moses was hanging out in the palace. Moses was living in the lap of luxury. Moses wasn't suffering with them. He was known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. And so all of the riches of Egypt, all of the education, all of the entertainment, all of the social prominence that was available and the status was available to Moses. It wasn't available to all of the Jews, but remember Moses is known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. And so all of those things are his. And if Moses keeps his mouth shut, Moses can live out his entire existence in ease and in prosperity. If Moses just shuts up and doesn't say anything, not only Moses, but his children and his children's children will be well taken care of throughout their lives. Moses doesn't have to, he does not have to worry about anything. However, the scripture tells us in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 24, by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead towards his reward. Now Moses was focusing upon an eternal reward. He already had an earthly reward. All of the riches that the children of Israel were looking for and all of the prosperity that they were looking for, it was already in Moses' hands. I don't need to do anything. He didn't have to say anything. He didn't have to work for it. It was all at his disposal. Do you understand that? And so it was all available to him. But Moses exchanged He had an earthly reward already, but he gave that up in exchange for an opportunity to gain an eternal one. And godly leaders do that all the time. Godly leaders and godly men and women exchange temporal blessings, temporal prosperity for the opportunity to gain eternal blessings. There are godly leaders all over the world who are ministering in dry and desert places. There's laymen and women who are working in dry and desert places. They're teaching in a dry and desert place. 
there's worship leaders who are ministering, laboring before the Lord in a dry and desert place. They don't have to stay there. But because they're looking for an eternal reward, because they're looking not just for the temporal things, not just for the convenience of now, because they're looking for an eternal reward, they're ministering in dry and desert places. Many times facing opposition and facing hardship, sacrificing financially. Leaders who have the ability to be successful in in many other areas of life instead will be pastoring a little home missions church or working for half the price at a drug rehab or at a shelter or at a mission field around the world. Why? Because they're exchanging the temporal things for eternal ones. And it happens every day. It's not just clergy who do that. It's God's men and women who serve in the local church who do that all the time. It's not just the paid leaders who do that. It's God's men and women who hear the call of God and feel the burden and see the need and respond to God's call upon their lives. Now, uh, here's the thing. Leaders need your support. And that brings us to the next portion of Scripture. Verse 8. The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, Choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I'll stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side and one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. As long as the leader, Moses, was in his rightful place, interceding before God with his hands held up, the Israelites were winning. But when his hands went down, the tide changed. Do you see that? Moses is up on the hill. He's in his place. He's in the place that God called him to be. God called him to be in a place of intercession. God called him to stand before God and between God and the people. And Moses stands upon on that mountain with his arms raised up. As long as his hands were extended, he's doing what God asked him to do. The Israelites are winning. Whenever he grew weary and tired and his arms started going down, they could literally see the tide in the battle changing. And from the top of the mountain, you can see the Israelites pushing them back. And as Moses' arms grow down, you see the Amalekites pushing the Israelites back. Who is it that suffered when Moses' hands went down? The common man. The common man is the one who suffered when Moses' hands go down. Moses is up on the hill. What are they fighting with? Swords. So... Whenever Moses' hands go down, Moses is not getting the one who's getting hit with the sword. Because Moses is up on top of the hill. His arms are just kind of aching. They're a little sore. Oh, yeah. His shoulders are hurting. 
poor dude out in the field, his head's hurting because someone just smacked him alongside the head with a sword. His wife is hurting because now her husband doesn't have an arm. There's some soldiers whose mothers are hurting because their son lost their life that day. It's the common man. It's the working man who suffered. It's the common warrior and his family, the ones who are on the front line, who suffered when Moses' arms went down. It did not affect Moses. Moses was going to be okay even when his arms came down. He was going to be okay. He's up on the hill. However, there's some 17 and 18-year-old young warriors who aren't going to go home if Moses' arms aren't lifted up. There's some dads who are never going to make it if Moses' arms aren't lifted up. And so Aaron and her see the value in helping or strengthening Moses. They move a rock and they set it underneath him and one grabs on one side and one grabs on the other and they lift him up, his hands up. May I say to you today that Today's leaders need your support, the humanity of leaders, whether it's the teachers in our school, whether it is your boss at work, whether it's parents in leading their families, whether it's dads trying to provide for their family and care for their home, they need your support today. Not just ministers, not just clergy, but leaders need your support The deacons need your support. The Sunday school teacher needs your support. The worship leader needs your support. The leaders in our community, they need your support as well. So why do they need your support? Number one is because of the weights they carry. Look to the person next to you and say, because of the weights they carry. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, Paul talks about how he had labored for the cause of Christ. Now, Paul was not someone who had this don't, tell policy. Paul was straight up. Paul named people by name who gave him grief so that throughout all for 2000 years, you still know about that Turkey. Okay. Paul tells you the people who deserted him. He tells the people who do not support him financially. Paul writes down their names. He tells you who they are. Okay. So Paul does not tiptoe around things. Paul's straightforward. Now Paul says to him in second Corinthians about how he had labored for them. Paul says five times he'd been beaten with 39 stripes. Three times he was beaten with rods. He was stoned. He'd been thrown into prison. Three times he was shipwrecked. He had been in danger from all sides. He had labored and he had toiled and he had gone without sleep. He had been hungry and had been thirsty and he had gone without food. He had been cold and he had been without clothing. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 28, Paul makes this statement, though. And he says, besides everything else, I face daily the pressures of my concern for all the churches. Paul's not just saying, I face daily the pressure of all the churches. He says, I face daily the pressures of my concern. There's a difference. It's not just the weight of the churches. It's the weight of his love for the churches. There's times that people can go through things. If you don't care about somebody and they're going through a difficult time, it's really not a big deal. You know what I mean? Oh, your car broke down. (laughs) Too bad. But when it's somebody who you love and care about, the things that they go through have a weight upon you. You understand that? 
There's a weight that comes upon you. And Paul says, I face daily the pressure of my concern. It's not just the weight of the churches. It's not just the work. It's not just the responsibility. It's this burden that he carries because of his love for them. Do you see that? There's a lot of leaders who don't carry that kind of weight. It's not a big deal. Can I tell you why? Because they're wolves. They devour. Paul talks about them. They devour the people. They use the people. They manipulate the people. They take advantage of the people. But that was not Paul's place. Paul says, I've been beaten. I've been shipwrecked. I've been hungry. I've been stoned. All of these things have taken place to me. And to top it all off, I carry this deep, heartfelt weight and concern for all of the people and what they're going through. I'm going to say this, that godly leaders, not lazy leaders, not manipulative leaders, the pressures and weights that godly leaders carry today is more than most people can imagine. And this is one of those things that as a pastor, you know, you don't tell people those things. Nah, because it kind of goes against our grain to say those things. That's why, listen to this. Here's some statistics I'm going to share with you from the Francis Schaeffer Institute of Church Leadership Development. Every month, 1,700 ministers leave the ministry never to return. These are people who have invested six years in education from college and graduate education. Every month, 1,700. 35 to 40% of ministers last less than five years in the ministry. 35 to 40% of those who make it through school, their education, those who feel called, make it through school, make it through their education, and go through the process of entering into ministry, 35 to 40% will last less than five years in the ministry. 60 to 80% of those who entered the ministry will no longer be laboring in the ministry 10 years later. So 60 to 80% don't make it past 10 years. Less than one out of 10 who enter the ministry will continue until they come to a point of retirement that will make that their lifelong thing. I know that people can minister in many other areas, but please listen to this. 90% of pastors report working 55 to 75 hours every week. And 50% still feel, in spite of working 55 to 70 hours every week, feeling unable to meet the demands of the job. 80% of clergy say that ministry is downright hazardous for their families. 80% of spouses feel that the pastor is overworked and they feel left out and underappreciated by people. I say this to you, it takes a special spouse and special children and a special family to be able to handle the demands of the weight that Paul talks about. Not just anyone can do that. Perhaps that's why Paul encouraged people who had the gift to remain single. Paul talks about how great it is to be single. And I'm thinking, what? What he's talking about is, he's really talking about, if you're going to devote your life to ministering to people, it may be better for you. If it's at all possible for you, it's better for you not to marry and not to have children because of the demands and the pressures that are upon your household that'll be upon you. 90% of them feel that they're inadequately trained to cope with the demands. 
And 70% feel that they're grossly, not just underpaid, but grossly underpaid. There's those pressures that leaders face today. There's weights that they carry. The second thing is because of the battles that they fight. There's battles that if you're going to be in a position of leadership, if you don't believe me, I just encourage you to step up to leadership. Step up into a place of leadership and see if Satan does not open up. God says, I'll open up the windows of heaven and pour out such a blessing on you. You don't have room enough to contain. You step up to do something for God. Start seeking God. Start praying. Start fasting. Start getting filled with the Holy Spirit and asking God, God, what do you want me to do? And I'll tell you what, Satan will open up the windows of hell and let out an attack on you and your family and your home and your mind and your finances. He'll come against you. Why? Because the thing he hates most is men and women who know their calling. He hates men and women, godly believers who are following the call of God on their life. Whether that's a vocational ministry or working in a secular field, uh, you know, it's, it's not just those who are, quote, paid clergy. He hates God's people who know their purpose and are fulfilling their purpose. Ephesians 6 says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. And he goes on to talk to us about putting on armor of God. May I say to you that there are outright attacks upon spiritual leaders today. Friday night, we had the chance to, a friend of ours came up from Maryland, and they visited us, and at the end, they, when they started to leave, they reminded us, I told you about them before, whenever we left, they started praying for us every morning and for our family. And that's almost 20 years ago. They reminded me Friday night. They said, Steve, when you and Lori left Baltimore, my wife and I, we made a commitment to pray for you. And every day when we've gotten up for the past almost 20 years, we've prayed for you every day. Can I tell you what? What a blessing. That's strengthening God's leaders. You know, we don't know. You know, there's so many guys, there's so many others who we know who have fallen morally. There's so many others who have quit. There's so many others who have, they've had problems come their way so that they're no longer doing what God calls them to do. And maybe the thing, the reason why I'm still here today is because a businessman and his wife get up every morning and mention my name before Jesus. That's what leaders need today. Leaders need Men and women who will uphold them in prayer, not just once in a while, but on a daily basis, intercede for them. Here's some more statistics from the Schaefer Institute. 70% of pastors constantly fight depression. 50% of pastors feel so discouraged they would leave the ministry if they could. Man, is it any wonder our churches sometimes struggle? Huh? If 70% are depressed and 50% would leave if they could, 70% do not have someone they consider a close friend, and 40% report serious conflict with a parishioner, serious, underlined, conflict with a parishioner at least once a month. The battles that they face. Can I just tell you this? As a leader, one of the challenges that we face is how many of you love conflict? If you love conflict, usually people don't like you very much, just being honest. One of the challenges, the battles they fight, one of the challenges of leaders is that if you're in a position of leadership, and there again, any place that you go, if you're in a position of leadership, 
you're going to have to deal with conflict. And you're going to have to deal with conflict a lot more than what you would have to if you're not in a position of leadership. And leaders, that's one of the things that literally sucks the life out of leaders. Frank, where you work, you get to deal with a lot of conflict, don't you? At the end of the day, do you feel invigorated when customers are really mad? No. Frank's between the company and the customers. So telling them these are the things that your car needed and trying to reason with them before they come in and blow the shop up. That's pretty draining at the end of the day, isn't it? And so those of you who have leadership positions on your jobs, the conflict between employees, my sister Terry does probably several hours every day, conflict resolution every day, hours every single day is spent trying to get people to play well together. Well, the cool thing is in their business, what they can say to them is, if you can't play well together, you're fired. There's 30 people standing in line for your job right now with the way the economy is. So you either learn to play good or find someplace else. The reality of it is, is if there's anything that takes energy out of leaders, it's constantly dealing with conflict. Now, here's the thing. I don't mind dealing with my own conflict and I'm happy to help people through conflict. But oftentimes what takes place is when there's conflict, before long, they start turning on you. My brother goes in to help people with domestic disputes. Before long, they're swinging at him. The reality of it is, is the conflict has a way, and some of you who deal with the public or in your jobs, you understand that conflict sucks the energy and sucks the life out of you. And so here's the reality. If you want to be a blessing to your leaders, learn how to get along well with others. Be humble. Be gentle. Be gracious. Forgive each other. Be compassionate towards one another. Those things go a long way. And when someone tries to help you through conflict, just because you don't see everything completely your way, that doesn't mean that they're against you. There may be a different perspective than what you're seeing. And so the reality of it is the battles that they face oftentimes has to do with conflict. And many people just get tired of conflict. And so what they do is they quit. Or people move on. Then they go to another job. And it's funny because the same guy's there. He just has a different face. A different name, but it's the same conflict. And so because of the battles that they fight. And finally, the third thing, I want to encourage you to uphold your leaders and strengthen them and encourage them, support them, because the stakes are so high. If you're a businessman, I'll tell you what, if you don't do what I say and I'm the owner of business, I'll fire you and I'll replace you and there'll be someone who will be happy to work here. If you don't like it, there's the door. That's the business world, okay? We're not in business. We're not about making money. We're about souls. We're about eternal things. And whenever it comes to dealing with issues in this world, we're dealing with people's souls and the lives of their children and the lives of their families. And so we do a much higher stakes. The souls of men and women hang in the balance. And Satan does all that he can to hinder and disrupt true men and women of God. Because he knows that they're doing God's work. He wants to do everything he can to disrupt them. Because if he can disrupt them, the Bible says this. If you strike the shepherd, what happened to the sheep? Strike the shepherd and the sheep are scattered. And so the reality of it is, is why do we support our leaders? Because the stakes are so high. It's not just about their job or their position. It's because they stand in the gap before God. 
on behalf of those teenagers. And so this is what I would say to you. If you want to bless the kids in our church and the kids in our community, you support Pastor Joe. Because if Pastor Joe's arms aren't lifted up, the enemy has access towards those kids. But when he's in his rightful place and he's ministering before the Lord, there's a protection and a covering that comes over those kids' lives. The blessing that Crystal is, you bless her, support her, encourage her, lift her arms up when she grows tired. Why? Because when Crystal's in her rightful place, she's leading an army of worshipers. And the thing is, 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 is like Moses, Moses is up on the hill. Moses did not need it as much. The, you know, the selfish part is, why should I support them? Because whenever you support them, you're really ministering to the people as you do that. I want to say this. Thank you for all the support that you've always, that you've always offered to my wife and I. 20 years in December, it'll be 20 years we've been here. We've always had wonderful people. Now, does that mean you can't keep it up? No, you can still keep it up. You can keep doing that. You can keep supporting the other leaders in the church. But as you do that, I'm going to tell you this. As you do that, you and your family, on your job, if you support your boss, in our communities, with our leaders in our community, if you support them, the whole church is blessed. The whole family is blessed. The whole community is blessed. The whole workforce is blessed. Whenever we're in our rightful place in supporting those who God has placed in our lives. So I just want to bless you and say thank you for what you do for us. And don't stop doing that. And look for other ways that you can bless and strengthen and uphold others. Father, I pray in Jesus' name. Thank you for the chance to share your word and to share about the life of Moses. We pray for the leaders who are here in this congregation. Leaders in our community, leaders in business, leaders in the home, and leaders in the church of God. We ask you today, for those who are weary and tired, I pray that you'd bring an Aaron and a Her alongside of them. Lord, I pray that they would lift up the hands that grow weary. I pray that they would encourage the heart that grows faint, Lord. I pray, God, that through their lives, through their very lives, that they would be an encouragement and a strength to the men and women of God who serve in so many different areas, whether it's the Sunday school teacher who teaches our kids, the youth worker who helps with our teens, Crystal as she leads, or the business owner, Lord. We just pray that we would be the kind of men and women who give honor where honor is due. And as we honor them, Lord, we're truly honoring you. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.